This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which many episodes I'll select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 110th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at The Eternals, number 9, from Marvel Comics, covered in March 1977. This book was selected as part of the Relatively Geeky Network's celebration of the 100th birthday of the late, great Jack Kirby. The plans are for this to not be the last time we look at a Kirby or Kirby-related book over the next few months. But first, a little feedback. On episode 108, the Marvel team-up issue, we heard from Jared Albrecht from White Rocket Entertainment and from our recent Veterans Day special. Just listen to your recent episode of Quarterbin. Love it! I'm a Moon Knight guy all the way. So the second you said who was on the cover, I was like, definitely worth 25 cents just for a cool cover of Spidey and Moon Knight. Say what you will about Jared, but the band definitely has good taste in B-level Marvel characters. Also, on that episode, the one, the only, the irredeemable Shag wrote in, after confessing that he'd fallen just a little bit behind in his podcast listening, he moved to his love of Marvel team-up. Another great episode. Growing up, Marvel Team-Up was my Spider-Man book of choice. Loved this series, as I professed on the first episode of Fire and Water Team-Up. Now, let me put a pin in this here, just to point out to my fellow podcasters who are listening to this, just how deftly Mr. Shag wove in a plug to his own podcast network while ostensibly praising one of my episodes. I don't say this lightly. The man's a genius. Evil genius, sure, and he's from Florida, so the standards are a little bit low, but still, genius. Back to Shag. This specific issue was one of my first. I didn't recall the details specifically, but your recap sort of reminded me that this wasn't my favorite issue compared to recent team-ups featuring Daredevil or Black Widow and others. Didn't hate it but it wasn't one I chose to reread often. Your love of Moon Knight is known far and wide. Could you imagine a Moon Knight Doctor Doom team-up? Yikes. I've tried several of his series, but beyond great art, it's never grabbed me. While I may praise your support of Doom 2099, can't back you up here on Moon Knight, pal, though I can respect your decision. After all, I live in a firestorm-tinted glass house. Finally, did someone mention Sad Sack? I realize this doesn't really fit the funny books you're considering covering, but dude, it's Sad Sack, my favorite funny book of all time. In fact, I've been reacquiring old issues whenever I find them in the cheap bins. Thanks again for another great episode. Would love to hear more Marvel team-up talk if they are in the database. Yes, Shag, they are. Or Sad Sack. I will take that under advisement as well, buddy. 
Moving on to last episode, we heard from Isaac from Michigan, who was shocked, shocked, shocked by a comment of mine in that episode. Professor, I'm sad. You started off so well with the FF. I mean, Dr. Doom's stupid enemies. You even delivered a fair assessment of an old Hulk book, but then you went and did it. Cue the dramatic dum 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 music here. You, Professor, said you didn't like the Hulk TV show. No! All joking aside, you're entitled to your opinion, and catching reruns as a small child may have tinted my glasses a slight shade of rose. It was my first introduction to the character, and I simply love the show. I even own all the seasons on DVD. Excellent episode as always, a loyal listener, Isaac from Michigan. As I'm sure you've heard us say before, Isaac, taste is taste. I don't judge you or anyone for loving the Hulk TV show and comic, and don't be mad at me. As a matter of fact, you should probably feel sorry for me and my cold, cold heart. And from Mike Laughlin, dear Professor Allen, enjoying the podcast as always. Hearing you speak so favorably about a Bill Mantlo comic has me thinking about the change in how his work has been assessed in the last few years. When I was much younger, the older comic readers in my area were quite dismissive of the 70s. There were certain legendary runs and stories held in high esteem. The works of Neil Adams or Barry Windsor Smith, Jim Starlin's Warlock. The Secret Empire, Captain America, Tomb of Dracula, Swamp Thing, Manhunter, Claremont and Burns X-Men, maybe Howard the Duck, everything else was dismissed out of hand, including Kirby's now-beloved Fourth World Saga. It was like almost nothing happened between Silver Age Marvel and the arrival of Alan Moore and Frank Miller. That same attitude was reinforced by Wizard Magazine, my primary source for comic book news and opinion pre-internet. If the wizard writers talked about the past in any way other than derisively, it was to praise comic books from the 80s. I don't think I ever heard a kind word about Mantlo, or Sal Buscema, Ron Wilson, Doug Mensch, Jim Mooney, and too many other 70s stalwarts until fans of their work could make their voices heard on the web. Bill Mantlow's unfortunate health situation may have something to do with this, but I think the fans writing about Rom and Micronauts are genuine in their appreciation of the actual stories. Yes, Mike, I, th- I think that part is true. And also in terms of Mantlow, I was just surprised by the quantity of his output. He was one of the leading writers of books among those first 100 episodes we did of this series. You pull a Marvel book from the late 70s or early 80s, there's a a one in three chance Bill Mantlo wrote it. So I think both the quantity and the quality of his books in particular is certainly worth commenting upon favorably. Back to Michael. Suddenly, Kirby's Fourth World is a work of genius. And hey, look, Commandy and the Demon are pretty good, too. Batman artists who weren't Neil Adams get large trade paperbacks sold on the strength of their names. Bob Haney's Madcap, Brave and the Bold, is lauded 
as one of the most fun series ever to hit the stands. Sal Buscema fans come out of the woodworks. The 70s are no longer the decade of blah comics. For a fan like me who was born during that disrespected decade, it's been eye-opening. It sounds like the people who put the magazine together chose the reprints carefully. I wish I'd known this book existed at the time. I was lucky enough to scoop up Tomb of Dracula and Electra magazines, reprinting the Miller material, which I loved. A few years later, we'd get the trade paperback explosion, and we had access to all the classic stories we couldn't afford to collect. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I love living in the golden age of reprints. Thanks again for another great episode, Mike Laughlin. Thank you. I love the idea that we are in the golden age of reprints. There is so much truth to that, especially when you throw in Marvel Unlimited or all the other digital options that are out there, in addition, of course, to the print versions of these reprint titles. I'll mention over on the Comics Reading Journal multiple times some of the books that I picked up recently at the Akron Comic Convention. But among the works I picked up there were two awesome reprint trade collections, uh, Marvel Masterworks' Lee and Kirby Captain America Volume 1 and an essential Fantastic Four Volume 2, both of which were five bucks apiece. There's just stuff in those books that you would either never find reprinted in a different format or would be so expensive to try to collect, and there they are at our fingertips for cheap. Patrick Delmore of the Star Trek podcast Next Generation's First Generation wrote in about his excitement about my covering the magazines on the show. I loved those. I think I only had two issues from when they came out. I read Terror in a Tiny Town and Marvel 2-in-1 number 50 in this format. Can't wait to listen. Well, you'll need to wait a little bit, Patrick, to at least get to those stories, because they were reprinted in issue 5, which was penciled in for episode 149. Just a reminder, we're currently in episode 110. So clear an hour or so, sometime in mid-November 2019, let's say, for full coverage of those stories. (laughs) Although the inclusion of the magazines did come at a cost, and Clinton Robison didn't like that. But, but Doom, I'm gonna miss the future. We all are, Clinton. We all are. But all good things, including our coverage of Doom 2099, must come to an end. Dr. Ange wrote in on the ongoing topic of separating art and artists, which in the couple of weeks since he sent this has just gotten harder and harder to handle. And wrote in and said, I find the artist's personal life affecting my viewing of their art so difficult. Certainly if Roman Polanski was doing a movie about pedophilia, I couldn't watch it. I've never seen his Lolita, but I love his Chinatown. And I've never read Cerebus. If it is laden with misogyny, I'd be out. In the same way, books with blatant political agendas turn me off. 
when the story supports an agenda I agree with, I admit I do tolerate it more. But even then, when the agenda is primary, I tend to be out. As for this, Marvel Magazine number one, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Madame Mask. A very soft spot, so good choice. Thank you, Doctor. Always appreciate your comments. Old School Ross did not like my broadside at a certain group of Canadians. Entertaining episode, but what's this a boot alpha flight, eh? Hoser, you must be a loony if you don't like them. Is your toque on too tight? They're shaggerific. Okay, Ross, thanks for sharing and put down the Molson, buddy. Pat from Longbox Crusade reported that he was binge listening to various of our episodes here. Always a doomtastic time. Nathaniel Wayne of the Council of Geeks YouTube page wrote in about last episode, mostly to tell me that I had titled the episode Marvel Miagazine, which to be fair, isn't that bad because magazine is not actually, you know, a word. Nathaniel also had a few things to say about my feedback to his prior feedback. The subject was my contention that no new comic book character of significance has been introduced by Marvel or DC Comics since, when, Deadpool maybe? The key was that I discounted family or legacy characters, putting them in the same category as reboots, and Nathaniel, to put it mildly, bristled at that. I feel they are vastly different things and really shouldn't be mentioned in the same breath. That's like saying Star Trek The Next Generation is basically the same as the reboot Star Trek movies on the Kelvin timeline. One is primarily a cynical move used to placate fans or writers who would rather try to, to hopelessly reclaim past glory rather than move characters forward, while another allows for a mantle to live on past a specific character, or as you mentioned, give an original character a better shot at success by being associated with a known brand. While there's a certain amount of cynicism with legacy characters, one could hardly make the claim that Kamala Khan is the same as Carol Danvers, or that Kyle Rayner and Hal Jordan are interchangeable. Unfortunately, legacy characters bring their own problems, because of how comic publishers tend to treat them after a few years, with DC being the greatest offender from where I sit. This always strikes me as deeply petty, particularly in the case of Hal Jordan. It's not enough that he'd been given redemption following his fall from grace. It wasn't enough that the character was still around. No! Hal's got to be the way I remember him being, or I'm going to hold my breath until I turn blue. Legacy characters should have been the future of comics. Heck, they were for a while. As much as I love comics... I find myself increasingly of the opinion that great stories can only be great once they've ended. And if we're not going to end the titles, we can at least put an end on specific characters' stories so that new ones can begin. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. I would like to argue with the professional buzzkill on legacy versus reboot, and I do admit that I took a few shortcuts from the publisher's perspective, but tying a new character to an old one does greatly reduce that character's risk of failure. 
because they know that we comic folk will give legacy or family characters a shot that we wouldn't give brand new characters. So does Kamala Khan count as the new character find of 2014, or is she a legacy character? It is more of a 50-50 question in this case than it might be to Nathaniel. And this is going to be the strongest character on his side of the argument. But I'm going to hold firm and say no. She's not a new character. For one thing, there is a specific in-story legacy and inspiration aspect to her origin. That, and also being an inhuman. And also, I honestly don't think the book or character would be nearly as popular if she were just a brand new character with no existing connections or legacy to the Marvel U. And I want to point out that legacy family characters aren't bad in my mind. It's a great way to introduce new iterations on characters, including adding diversity to a line in a conservative, meaning less risky, manner. The Green Lanterns have made great use of this, as has the Spider-Verse and the Bat Family. I love the Green Lanterns book but I don't think Jessica Cruz or Simon Baz would have a chance of having a book run as long and sell as well as GL's has if they were a pair of independent, unaffiliated characters. Again, I love Jaybird, but I don't count her as an original, new character. In a similar way, the Bumblebee and Cheetah and Harley Quinn characters, among others, from the DC Superheroes Girls, bear little resemblance to their traditional mainstream takes, but that doesn't make them new characters either. They exist in that franchise because they were existing characters in the DC stable, even though the target demographics for DC superhero girls may not be familiar with them from other sources. So they're new versions, but they're not new characters. And yes, I know what you're all thinking. I guess I am kind of a hard grader. <laughs> also responding to my feedback, to some of Nathaniel's feedback about my take on a reboot of the FF, the lovely Sutherlands chimed in. Hi, Professor Allen. We don't have anything significant to say. Just wanted to let you know that I really liked the Fantastic Four update using Elon Musk and SpaceX as an analog. That's a perfect idea for an update. Thumbs up. On the topic of the Marvel magazine that we covered, they also replied, Woo, four books in one. Thought you'd be worn out after the six-installment mega-length episode 100 extravaganza. Nice to learn I'm mistaken. Well, once every ten episodes, I think I can handle it. But I appreciate your concern, guys. Also, replying to Darren's feedback, he reported that he was listening to the numbering and math lessons in the episode and quite enjoying them. And many of us reported that we were definitely not telling Shag about the episode numbering situation. Thanks for that. And for all the feedback and the favoriting and retweeting and forwarding and sharing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's take a quick break here, and when we get back, we're going to get our Kirby on.
Greetings listeners, I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I host the Pulp to Pixel podcasts. I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts explore the media multiverse of geek culture with such shows as Welcome to Astro City and Secret Sagas of the Multiverse. Now I am proud to announce the newest addition to the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, Dial G for Gamer, a superhero gaming podcast. Dial G for Gamer will be a semi-monthly show where I and my co-hosts play and review games with a superhero theme. From tabletop games to video games, we will take on the genre one superhero game at a time. So if you love superheroes and gaming as much as we do, then tune in to Dial G for Gamer. You can find episodes of Dial G for Gamer with the other Pulp to Pixel podcasts through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. You can follow us on Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Pulp to Pixel, where I go under the name Dr. G Nerdologist. And you can find episodes directly at our blog, pulptopixel.blogspot.com. And we're back. The Eternals, number nine, had an original cover price of 30 cents, meaning I got a pretty woeful, not even 17% markdown off the original price. It's kind of a bummer, but I think I can get over it. We can persevere. The cover by Jack Kirby is absolute Jack Kirby. We have a big red monster center page being fired at from multiple directions his body is in motion and from his face he may be in deep pain this is carcass and from the cover copy we know that he can't be controlled he can't be stopped he's the killing machine who were the space gods whose images engraved on ancient stone taunted us with an awesome mystery that may thunder to life in tomorrow's skies? Who were the devils and demons that plagued the footsteps of humanity and filled its dreams with terrors that linger to this day? Who were we? Can we be the true inheritors of the earth or one of many seeds planted by celestial hands? Read on. See the fantastic become reality. See the killing machine. The story, The Killing Machine, was written and drawn and edited by Jack Kirby and inked and lettered by Mike Royer. We start with Icarus in his blue and red outfit flying across the page with Makari and Margot following behind in an airship of some kind. New York City is far behind us, Icarus tells the others, and even though they seem to be in the middle of nowhere... We should see Olympia any moment now. And in a Kirby-rific two-page splash, we see the awe-inspiring city of Olympia, mountaintop home of the Eternals. But they're greeted by a flying, biting, serpent, snake thing of nightmare and horror. 
Icarus swiftly maneuvers to escape the jaws of the living monstrosity. His eyes blaze bright and deadly as destructive forces leap at his attacker. But from the ensuing explosion, another beast is spawned. But Icarus has a hunch that to rid themselves of this second, larger monster, they must seek out a smaller one. He whips out his pistol-like instrument, and a thin beam lances towards its target, a young Eternal, a trickster named Sprite. He had created these things with his imagination. Icarus chases Sprite through the very heart and splendor of High Olympus, and we see that this is not the first time that Sprite has caused such mayhem. Elsewhere, around the world, the Celestials make themselves known to humanity. The space gods of the Inca carvings have suddenly appeared everywhere. Zuras, Nazar, Hargan, and others of these huge Kirby creations spark confusion and panic all across the Earth. The Celestial Isan submerges himself off the coast of Florida to travel to New Lemuria. There is an awesome page of him in the ocean, which is coming up only to his waist, and he's looming menacingly over a cruise ship, with a news helicopter appearing very tiny before him. He vanishes beneath the sea without disturbing a ripple. His mountainous bulk glides forward into the deeps, into the domain of the deviants. Isan heads to the ruins of New Lemuria, an undersea city which fell before the wrath of the space gods. Now the deviants still live beneath the sea, and we follow an undersea craft enter the ruins of this hidden city, emerging into a maze of canals and bizarre structures which rival any modern human city. Thena is invited to one of the deviants' oldest rituals, where their outcasts are made to fight for their lives. And in this land of rejects, the one traditionally handsome man is considered the reject. And this reject has to fight the killing machine, the red giant from the cover, the being called Carcass. In the gladiatorial pit, the fearless reject strikes at Carcass like an enraged gnat. And with each sting of his weapon, he scores a telling wound. And to the surprise of all, the mutate carcass speaks. You hurt carcass. Why? Carcass charges, which is what the reject was hoping for. He fires short blasts at the giant's eyes and legs, toppling him, rocking the arena. He defeats the big red monster, and in his killing frenzy... He turns to the arena guards and fights his way right through them. The surprise guards are hurled in every direction. One even fires a weapon, but the reject has turned that weapon upon the guard himself. He runs amok and more guards arrive and rush him. He defeats them all and approaches the royal court who has witnessed these frenzied attacks. He jumps toward the deviant ruling family, but is stopped by a force field. Before the ruling family can decide what to do with the reject, the arena is jolted by a tremor of earthquake proportion. In the sea, 
outside. The feet of the celestial Isan betray his presence, for he has reached the ocean floor. They attack the celestial, but the tremendous power unleashed against him does little to disturb him. His response, as a matter of fact, is to drain all of New Lumeria's power. This energy drain shuts down everything in the city, including that force field back in the arena. You know, the one that separated the reject from the royal family? And the reject is now free to wipe out the objects of his burning hate. He moves menacingly forward. The end. So, as my podcasting buddy, Trennis Magnus, likes to ask, what did I think of this? First, the obvious. There's a lot going on here. This book is totally crazy, and that's mostly a compliment. It is full of wild creatures and fantastically designed characters, uh, fantastically designed locales. We have a city in the mountains, a city under the sea, a few spots around the regular part of the world, and pretty much everything in between. And each of those locales and the people in them have more or less their own distinct styles, but all of them are definitely designed and drawn by one Jack Kirby. I am not great at describing art, but let me try to talk about a couple of my favorite bits. First, the two-page splash. This is pages two and three of the issue. This is Icarus flying into the Kirby Tech mountain city, and the flying snake thing is attacking him. Somehow, you see the movement both of Icarus and the beast. So even though it's a drawing, it's a frozen moment in time, it seems more like a, a, a 20-second video clip somehow. You know what the scene looked like in the, the 10 seconds before this one, and in the 10 seconds after. Uh, the angles of the bodies, the motion lines, perspective, all of that gives us that sense of motion for all of these characters. And of course, the, the background of this scene is a totally Kirbyized city. And that would be an awesome enough page all by itself, but it's just used as background. And the scene with Isan about halfway through is pretty epic. We have a full pager of the Celestial looking at this you know, huge mammoth cruise ship. But the half of him that we see towers over that. And he is green and purple with more Kirby Tech lines and circles and curves than I know what to do with. Isan's design is epic. And then on the next page, we get the classic portrait of a Kirby being in flight coming right at the reader. We've seen that dozens and dozens of times. And it's always cool. But this one is different. Because the character is actually not flying straight at us. But he's sinking into the ocean. He's actually moving away from us. And the way the bubbles and the motion lines are drawn, you can tell that this being is, in fact, moving away from us. It's a surprising picture. And it works really well. And then towards the end, we have the scene of the ruling family at the gladiator arena. We have so many shapes and sizes of beings. Skin colors, hairstyles, clothing. Again, really good. 
it shows a diversity in the broadest, most general sense of that word. And this is certainly an energized Jack Kirby. You get the sense that without any co-workers to worry about, without any oversight to worry about, he's crafting a comic series completely to his own specifications. There is a really small crew on this book. It is both inked and lettered by Mike Royer, which is kind of an an unusual combination from my comic reading experience. Other than Royer and colorist Glennis Ween, Kirby does everything else. And that's actually a bit of a mixed blessing. Obviously, very few writers become comic book artists. There's a very verifiable skill in being an artist. In other words, it's pretty easy to tell if you're good at it or not. And most writers are smart enough to realize that they aren't capable of becoming professional artists. But lots of artists have taken their shot at becoming comic book writers. They are obviously an important part of the storytelling process. So you can understand the impulse to want to have even more control over the process, to draw the scripts that you write. And certainly there have been success stories of the writer-artist. Of course, one of my favorites, Mike Grell, did it for quite some time. Walt Simonson on Thor. Howard Chaikin. Many others. But it's like when you're on Chopped and you're required to do one dish, but you prepare two, it's risky because you'll always be judged on the worst of the two dishes. And in the same way, I think a writer-artist will be judged on the weaker of those skills. So again, I have no problem with the phrase written and drawn by whoever. Like I said, there are plenty of fine writer-artists and Jack Kirby among them. But here, we have a trickier and I think a more dangerous combination. For this issue was written, drawn, and edited by Jack Kirby. Imagination is great, but maybe, just maybe, it needs to be reeled in every now and then. Because in this issue, there are a lot of good ideas. Most of them really good. But boy, this is a crowded, packed book. I've long held the position regarding Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, that they're Lennon and McCartney in some combination. Each did solid work without the other, but neither was as good a solo artist as they were when they worked together. And I think part of my issue with this issue, in terms of the scripting, was that it didn't seem like a 1977 comic book. I'm not in love with everything about the fourth world, but it certainly felt like something new for DC, breaking out of their 1960s mold. Those felt like books from the early 70s somehow. This one seems, and maybe it's because Jack is is back at Marvel, where he made his bones in the early to mid 60s. But this seemed to more closely resemble a book from the early 1960s. Every panel has either a narration box or a dialogue box and most of them have two or three or four. That seemed a little more throwback to me somehow than a modern book from 1977, you know, what would have been current at the time of this. Now, it's important to remember that I'm not an expert in Jack Kirby, and this is a 
the only issue of the Eternals that I've ever read, so I may very well be way off base with these comments. And all that being said, this is a gorgeous comic book. The layouts and the pencils are wonderful. And I like to distinguish between story and script. And the story is really strong. The stuff that's going on here is pretty epic. Big ideas, big concepts. And I appreciate that. Any quibbles that I have are on the specifics of the scripting, which just seemed a little overwritten, a little overly melodramatic here and there. A little too 1960s-ish. A little too Stan Lee-ish. When Marvel had moved on by this point to their next second generation of writers. The thing is, these pencils are so good that Jack didn't need all of those words, all of those captions, all that description, all that dialogue even. As if he as a writer didn't trust his own art. I'm not sure because I acknowledge that that wouldn't make any sense, but that's just sort of how it seemed to me. But maybe, just maybe, a little stronger editorial hand could have brought that scripting, that dialogue up just a bit if someone had exercised just a little less is more. Because that's all it needs. It just needs a little tightening. It just falls a little bit short. Back to the art, because I don't know if I said this clearly enough. That gladiatorial fight is terrific. It's the last eight pages of a 17-page story, so it's just short of half the issue. And it is, as you would expect, dynamic and has a relentless energy to it. The fight doesn't last all that long. It's a matter of minutes. But it's dramatic and action-packed and really well-paced. So big props to Jack Kirby in that account. Overall, the verdict on Eternals number 9, this is 17 pages of pure, unadulterated, and unedited Jack Kirby. If that works for you, then this will work for you. If that doesn't work for you, I understand that, I guess. And this probably wouldn't be for you. As I remember saying many times in the multi-part episode 100, this series would be better if you could find a decent-sized run, even just three or four issues, to get more of the context for the action, for the plot, for the story. But all that being said, this is wonderful world-building. And seems to be a pretty dramatic story. I do struggle recommending just this one issue as a standalone for that reason, knowing that issue 9 would be much more enjoyable, both to you and probably to me, if you, or if I, had had, say, 7 and 8 and 10 and 11. But again, all that being said, Eternals number 9, yes, of course, this is a quarter bin deal. That wraps up my coverage of The Eternals, number nine, bringing episode 110 to a close, and for the time being, bringing our Jack Kirby celebration to a close. But there are plans to do at least one more Kirby episode, maybe two, in the next six or eight months or so, while we are still in his centennial year. By the way, if you're interested in hearing more about the works of Jack Kirby, may I recommend to you Michael Lane's newest podcast. You may know him from the Comics in the Golden Age podcast. His new show is, appropriately enough, The Kirby Cast. 
As of this recording, only one episode is out. So this is your chance to jump on that bandwagon early. I have listened to episode one, and Michael revealed that he will be covering The Eternals and that it's one of his favorite Kirby works ever. Now back over here on the Quarterbin, next time in episode 111, we'll be taking a look at a book selected via a Twitter poll. So if that episode stinks, you only have other listeners to blame. No, no, that's not going to happen. Because we'll be looking at Batman and the Outsiders number 32 from DC Comics, cover dated April 1986. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.